Well, good evening and welcome back to our second in a four-part series on the essentials of the Christian faith. So it's good to see everybody here, those of you joining us online. Uh, let me say a prayer for us and we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for the privilege that we have to gather together, privilege we have to study your word in a world that seems to be more and more hostile to the truth. And I pray, Father, that we might be lights in the darkness, that you would give us the faith to trust you and the courage, Father, to speak the truth kindly and compassionately to those who so desperately need to hear it. I pray for peace in Jerusalem. I pray for peace for all of those who seek it. And I pray, Father, that your hand would be on that situation. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as we always do, this is the number to text your questions during class. It's on the handout. It's on the handout online as well. So feel free to ask questions. We got into this series because when we were studying the book of Ephesians, we were talking about unity. And Ephesians chapter four talks about the unity of believers or the unity of Christ followers, unity in the church. And this is a saying, this isn't in the Bible, this is a quote. And it really sums up very well the way uh, a lot of Christians approach this idea of unity. Because unity doesn't happen just because we want it to. Unity happens around something that we share. So unity in a family is around the, at the very least, the DNA that you share. Unity in as some club or organization is around a shared interest. So for us, the unity is around the essentials of the Christian faith. And so that's what we are doing, is talking about what are, are those things that unify us that are essentials in the Christian faith. As we talked about this, I, I wanted to make a point to you because it's, you, you hear a lot of things that make us think about Christianity in different ways. And I know that if you look around this room, I guarantee you that we, we all think about Christianity uh, following Christ a little differently. I think we have a core, but depending on who you've been listening to, you might emphasize one thing, like you might emphasize justification or what we typically call salvation. Or you might emphasize sanctification or what we call uh, following Christ and becoming more like Christ. Or we might emphasize a, do a doctrine or something else. And so when we think about what does it mean, we're trying to distill it down. And I'm gonna suggest to you that the Christian faith is a way of life. In our last lesson, we talked about how Christians in the first century didn't call themselves Christians, other people called them Christians. And it, wasn't a, and it wasn't a complimentary term. They considered themselves to be followers of the way, the way of Jesus Christ, that the Christian faith is a way of life. And the parallel for them is this idea of discipleship, of following the rabbi, if you will, coming out of the uh, Jewish world, but actually this idea of followers of a teacher is actually known outside the Jewish world as well. But this is the template for how Jesus is speaking when he talks about being disciples. I'm gonna use the phrase following Christ and disciples, and I mean those very much interchangeably because they're both action words. They both involve commitment and movement, not just a belief, but belief plus action. Well, in the Jewish world, and, and also outside the Jewish world, the way it worked when you follow a rabbi 
is you not only believed what the rabbi taught, you not only accepted the teachings of the rabbi, you also lived your life the way the rabbi lived their life. You weren't a student, a passive student, like say you went to university today and you go to calculus class. You, you go there to get the information and you may like your teacher, you may not like your teacher, you may have that teacher for one semester and on you go. Makes no difference. That's not this model. This model was attaching yourself to a rabbi, a teacher, and you not only wanted to know what they knew, you wanted to be who they were. You actually want to be like them. The reason I put these pictures up there is a lot of people ask, why do Orthodox Jews dress the way they do? And why do they dress differently? They each dress like their rabbi. So for example, in the upper right, you'll see a branch of Orthodox Judaism and they happen to wear white shirts, black coats, black fedoras, all of the disciples do the same thing. In the upper left, for example, you see what looks like a great hat for a winter environment. But if you see Jews who are of that sect in a hot climate, that's the hat they're going to wear because that's how their rabbi dresses. And that's true for, uh, for all of those sects. And it's a, rep it's a visual representation of what it means to be a disciple. You want to believe what they believe and you want to be who they are. Probably the closest thing, and it's not very close, in uh, our modern world like this would be perhaps somebody who's apprenticing in a trade. And I realize this is not on the same level, but you'll get the idea. Say you are apprenticing as an electrician and so you're following around an experienced electrician. Now, obviously you don't necessarily wanna be who that person is necessarily or agree with all their political beliefs, but between eight and five or whenever you're working, you want to know what they know. You want to learn everything they know about this job and you will tend to be like they are. You not only learn how this works and how to install this or how to fix this, you will tend to do it like your teacher does it. Does that make sense? So that's a, that's a lower level, but you get the same kind of an idea. This was whole life discipleship. This is what the New Testament is talking about. In Romans 8, 29, this is tacked on and kind of overlooked from the, um, that God works in all circumstances for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But it goes on and says, for those whom God foreknew, I'm gonna, for the moment, I'm gonna say the disciples, the followers of Christ, he predestined, that's a strong word, he ordained that they would be conformed to the image of his son. What does that sound like to you? That when it says we are disciples, we not only believe the teachings of Jesus, we want to be like Jesus in every respect of our lives. And so this is the template that I wanna use for us to understand what the Christian faith is. Now you may say, Terry, the Christian faith is also this, and it's also that, and I would agree with that, but it is not less than this. There's no way you take this part out of Christianity and still have Christianity. Does that make sense? This is an essential idea, the idea of being conformed to the image of your rabbi.
being a disciple of Christ, being a follower of Christ. So, we talked about the first essential of the Christian faith, and this has been held by Christians forever, for 2,000 years, and that is the authority of Scripture. Without the authority of Scripture, which is very well attested, we talked about it being inspired by God, we talked about it being eyewitness testimony, but without the authority of Scripture, you really have no idea what it means to follow Christ, to be like Christ. If you don't accept the authority of God's inspired word, and you think, well, it's not inspired, or it's the opinion of men, or in some way diminish the authority of scriptures, you're gonna have a hard time explaining to any reasonable person, how do you know what it even means to follow Christ? How do you even know what Jesus is like to follow him? So a core idea of, it's in all the creeds in the early church is the idea of the authority of the scripture. In this lesson, I wanna move on to something else that's absolutely essential at the very core of the Christian faith and life, and that is what I'm gonna call the gospel. Another way of saying it, and this is what you'll see in a lot of statements of faith on web pages for churches, you'll see this language in a lot of the early church creeds, is the death, burial, and bodily resurrection of Jesus. In other words, the gospel. And so Jesus himself uses this word. This word gospel is a really uh, modern word. Comes to us through Old English, but it just literally means good news. And so I'll use those two interchangeably. If I say the good news, you know I mean the gospel. Okay, so here's what Jesus was saying when he began to preach. If you ever wonder what was Jesus preaching when he went from village to village to village for that three, three plus years, this is what he was preaching. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That is what Jesus was preaching. I would argue that's pretty essential to the Christianity, isn't it? It's what Jesus was himself preaching. Repent and believe the gospel. So let's talk about then and let's dive in. What is the good news of Jesus Christ? What actually is the gospel? Well, at its very base, the gospel is an historical event which we proclaim to the world. The gospel, the good news, is a historical event. These pictures, I just put them on here for fun because I didn't have a map. Uh, so, but these pictures are interesting. There are two places in Jerusalem that contend to be Golgotha. One is, uh, it's got a Catholic church over it. You can't actually see the hill. This is the other one. Anybody see a skull in there? Yeah. I mean, Golgotha is Hebrew for skull and Calvary is Latin for skull. And so he was crucified at the place of the skull. And so this is one of the, this pick is from the early 1900s. On the right, you just have an empty tomb. I'm not saying that's the tomb, but that's an empty tomb exactly like it would have been. That's a first century tomb. And so the idea of what is the gospel, it is an historical event that Jesus was crucified, 
that Jesus was dead in the grave for three days, the way Jews count days, and then the grave was empty and Jesus was resurrected and then appeared alive to a lot of people afterwards. That event, the death, burial, and bodily resurrection of Jesus, that historical event rooted in history is the essence of the gospel. Let me take a little detour for just a second because not everybody believes that. And I'll give you two examples, one modern, one ancient. I just thought this would be interesting to you. So in the Quran, so remember, Muhammad lived, he was born 570 years after Jesus. And when he died, he had recited all of these revelations from the angel Gabriel, okay? And that got recorded in the Quran. The Quran is a collection of revelations that Muhammad is speaking, saying Allah, which is just the Arabic word for God, told the angel Gabriel to tell me this and I'm telling you. In one of those, they're called surahs, chapters. One, it says this, for they say, indeed we have killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of God, the messenger of Allah. They did not kill Jesus, nor did they crucify him, but another was made to resemble him to them. And indeed, those who differ over it are in doubt about it. They have no knowledge except the following assumption, and they did not kill him for certain. Muslims do not believe that Jesus was actually crucified. He was a messenger of Allah, far be it that he could possibly be crucified. So that's one where Muslims think that the Christian scriptures are wrong. It has been misrepresented to you that Jesus wasn't crucified. The other, I didn't get a quote on this because they're really obtuse quotes, but uh, the other is comes from the Gnostics. The Gnostics were a group of people in the first century and the second century, in the first century, who were preaching something that wasn't the Christian faith. And here's, this is a pretty good representation. They're called docetic Gnostics. There were different varieties. They assert that Christ was born without any participation of matter. All the acts of suffering in his life, including the crucifixion, only appeared that way. They consequently denied Christ's resurrection and ascension into heaven. What Gnostics thought, and this is a, a blending of Greek thought and Christian thought and put them together, they thought that Jesus was an aeon, translate that into spirit, and that the spirit was Jesus, the body wasn't, and so they denied the resurrection. In your New Testament, particularly, for example, in several letters, particularly the letter of Colossians, this teaching was going around the churches. It pretended to be a Christian teaching. And it was going around the churches in the area of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And in the letter of Colossians, Paul writes things to rebut this and says, no. In Ephesians, remember when he says to them how, uh, and the Galatians, how quickly you have deserted the gospel for another good news, which isn't even a gospel at all? This is what he's talking about. He said, that's not Christianity. That's not what happened. Christianity is built around 
a historical event. Most early uh, authors that talk about this, though, affirm it. This is extra biblical. This is outside the Bible. These are just a couple of historical references. Tacitus was a Roman historian. And you can see this account's dated in 116 AD, very close. He, uh, picking up in the middle of a sentence, he said, these people are called Christians by the populace. They don't call themselves Christians, they're called Christians by the populace. Christus, Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, was crucified. During the reign of Tiberius, the emperor, at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. This is considered a very accurate historical account that the Romans thought, no, this, that actually happened. This guy Jesus was uh, crucified. Josephus, who lived in the first century, was a Jewish historian. Here's what he says about uh, Jesus. About this time there lived Jesus. He's writing a history of the Jews. A wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. That's the Hebrew word. Christ is a Greek word, mean the same thing. And when, upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease to love him. In other words, him being crucified didn't stop them from believing in him. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life. He was raised to life on the third day. For the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not appeared. So this is later in the first century, he's just saying, as a historian, he, I don't think he's a Christian. He's just saying, this is what happened. In other words, he's dead, buried, resurrected. So I just want you to know there are some people who doubt that, but it's historically speaking, you know this about as well as you know anything in ancient history. So the gospel at, at its core is an historical event which we are proclaiming. And here's how Paul does it. This is a great little summary of the good news of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel of the good news that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, meaning you believe it. Not only do you believe it, you rely on it being true. I use the word trust a lot instead of believe because it's just one Greek word. And for us, the idea of trust or relying on something better captures what he's saying here than just mental assent. He says, and you are relying on that to be true and by which you are being saved. This good news somehow saves you. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, in other words, this is essential. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, also in accordance with what the scriptures foretold. He appeared to Peter, Cephas, then to the 12, the disciples, then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers, believers, at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have died, then he appeared to James, 
Then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's the gospel, that historical event. So we don't rely on, well, you just have to believe what Jesus taught. No, actually the essence of the good news is something that actually happened. This was very normal. In fact, that word gospel, that word uh, good news is where we get evangelism. That, that Greek word literally is evangelism. And so what is evangelism? It's proclaiming the good news. I know that we've used that word a little differently like persuading someone to follow Christ, uh, getting someone to become a believer. But at its core, what it's always meant is proclaiming this good news. This was not a Christian thing. In fact, when something big happened in the ancient world, and it didn't have to be huge, it could be something that happened in your state or your province, they would send out, because uh, Al Gore hadn't invented the internet yet, so they would send out these heralds. And they would send them out all over, and they would go town to town, and they would proclaim the news that the king wanted you to hear. So for, I'll give you a great example. When the Roman emperor had an heir, they would send people out and say, Emperor Tiberius has given birth to a son who is his heir. And that would be the good news that was proclaimed. They might go proclaim that the emperor and his armies have defeated the rebels on the eastern frontier and peace rules again. And so whenever there was something monumental that happened, they would send out these heralds and they would proclaim the good news. That exact phrase is all over the New Testament. Uh, John in 1 John, just one little example says, what we have seen and what we have heard, we announce to you. And then a little later he'll say, what we, our hands have handled and our eyes have seen, we proclaim to you. What did the early Christians think they were doing? They were announcing a major event that has happened. The death, the burial, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus who is the Messiah. That makes sense? I want you to think about it a little differently than we normally do. I wanna go back to the sources and see how, what does authentically following Christ look like? What did our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago think they were doing? The gospel is first of all an event that is being proclaimed. What the scriptures tell you is they go just a little bit further because not only would they proclaim the news. So let's suppose that uh, when Augustus Caesar uh, had an heir, he had chosen an heir, happened to be Tiberius, uh, and he said, Tiberius, you're gonna be emperor after me. And they go proclaim that throughout the whole empire. And let's say you're a Jew living in Jerusalem, and here comes the herald and says, good news, Emperor Augustus, the great God Augustus, has decided that Tiberius will rule after him. Now you gotta stop and think, you're like, yeah, so what? I live in Jerusalem, I hate every Roman's guts, and that's okay, you know, I mean, we're being oppressed by the Romans, do you care? The other part of good news is, why is it good news? Do you understand what I'm saying? Why do they call it good news? 
Well, let me take my little example. One reason that even the Jews in Jerusalem thought it was good news that Augustus had chosen a successor is because the Roman peace would continue to last. There would be an orderly transition of power because people had lived through civil wars amongst the contenders for the Roman throne. And that was bad for everybody. A lot of people got killed, a lot of people got conscripted into the army, Roman fighting Roman, uh, provinces being taxed to the bone so that they could have a civil war. Everybody thought this was good news, whether you like the Romans or not, an orderly transition of power means peace and safety and security for me and my family. So there's the proclamation of the event, but the reason it's, because you could proclaim bad news, right? Bad news, you know, the stock market fell. You know, bad move news, we're $32 trillion in debt. It, you could proclaim good news or bad news, but the other part of proclaiming the news was telling you why it's good news. Make sense? So the gospel is good news, first because it's an event, and then what the scriptures do is they go on to tell you why is this good news as opposed to bad news or indifferent news. This is good news for humanity. So what the scriptures do is not just proclaim the fact of Jesus' death, burial, and bodily resurrection. The New Testament tells you what this means. And this is where you tend to see differences that separate out what is the essence of Christianity, the essential gospel, and what is not, what is not orthodox, what is not true. I gave you one example of Paul talking about the Gnostics saying, they say Jesus wasn't bodily resurrected. And that's a lie, that's not true. Uh, there were others called Judaizers that were also Christians who were teaching that Paul speaks, well, actually a lot of the New Testament writers speak against. They were going around teaching people something different. They said, you can't be a Christian until you follow the 613 commandments of the Jews. Paul says, that's not the good news. He said, trust me, that's not good news at all because nobody can follow all those laws. Make sense? So there have been gospels that aren't true gospels. And that continues to this day. So what I wanna jump into next is I wanna talk about when people do, do not accept the gospel, what are they changing so that we can calibrate what is the essential belief about this good news? Question. How did the deniers of Christ's divinity explain the many eyewitness experiences seeing the resurrected Christ? Yeah, so how, met, how did the, uh, those who denied Christ's bodily rec, uh, resurrection explain the many sightings of him? First of all, they don't. They ignore it because they have a preconceived idea. And so they're preaching over in Turkey and they're coming along saying, no, let me tell you the way the world really works. Yes, of course there's a God. And yes, of course, his spirit or his aeon came upon this man, Jesus. But the man, Jesus, doesn't matter at all because before he was crucified, the aeon, the spirit, the eternal part of him, left him. 
And so, of course, God himself was never crucified for you. And they fundamentally ignore it. In other words, they have a preconceived idea and they're gonna fit the circumstances into their preconceived idea. Good question. And that still happens. If you stop and think about it, a lot of teachings today that are, that are not true, they're not, uh, they don't uh, recognize the authority of the scripture, they don't teach what has historically been held, fundamentally have a perspective into which they try to fit this. That's what the Judaizers were doing. They said, no, you gotta clean up your act before you can be a Christian. The Gnostics were saying, no, being a Christian is all about your spirit. In fact, the Gnostics said, eat, drink, be merry, all that stuff about sexual immorality doesn't matter. Do anything you want with your body. It's your soul that counts. Well, you can see why all the early Christians said neither one of those are true. And so they were not considered Christian beliefs. Well, this is a great quote. Uh, this is from a 20th century theologian, Richard Niebuhr. And he was critiquing the liberal Christianity of the mid 20th century. And I'm not so interested in getting into liberal Christianity in the mid 20th century, but that quote is all about what does the gospel mean? In other words, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. What is that, why is that good news? Here's his critique. He says, they preach news of a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Something that departs from orthodox biblical Christianity about the gospel usually does it in one of those or all four of those areas. And so that's what I wanna explore. What the Bible teaches us about the significance of that historical event, which we call the good news, has something to do with God. It says something about God. It says something about us. It says something about judgment. And it says something about what actually happened on the cross. There was something going on on the cross. And that's what I wanna look at. This is the essence of what is the gospel about. First, here, here's Jesus in the first instance speaking about God. He said, whoever believes in the Son, relies on the Son, trusts in him, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The idea of God having wrath, God, uh, and I'm not talking about, there are a couple of Greek words. One of the Greek words for crazy mad is manic, mania. That's not this word. This is like when you find out that some drug dealer has been on the playground at your school and is trying to sell drugs to your grandchild or your child. Okay, that's just called wrath. That's anger. It's like, I am justifiably angry about that. That is a threat. That's the wrath of God. Some people, like uh, Niebuhr's critique, would say, well, wait a minute. I accept the gospel, but not that God has wrath towards sin. And so what Niebuhr's gonna say is, these, these things are not authentic Christianity. The idea of God having wrath towards sin. And then Romans 2.5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, 
You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The idea that God is justifiably angry at sin and the effects of sin. I want you to think about it in terms of the modern era. If you think about what happened in Israel on October 7th, and if you happen to know any of the details of that, you would be hard pressed to believe in a God who was not angry at that. Now, I'm not picking on anybody because we could go through the world today, we could go through all of history and there are plenty of sins, plenty of instances of evil by all kinds of people that you would have a hard time with a God who wasn't wrathful about that. I'm telling you it's not only reasonable but it's very much scriptural and it's very much a part of why this event is good news. If God has no wrath, then the gospel, what Jesus did on the cross, is a solution running around looking for a problem to solve. If God has no wrath, you and I have no problem. And consequently, Christ died in vain. I mean, I appreciate it, but I'm fine. That makes sense? That's one of the key ideas about what this gospel means. Second, what does the gospel have to say about humanity, men and women. This again is John uh, recording the words of Jesus. I told you, Jesus said, that you would die in your sins. For unless you trust that I am the Messiah, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. In other words, you and I, there's a reason that Jesus is incarnated. There's a reason that Jesus goes to the cross, because there's this wrath of God against sin and against evil, and we are infected with that disease. So Jesus again in Matthew, from that time, Jesus began to, to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that word repent means, literally, it means to change your mind. But what it effectively means is you need to change the direction that you're going. You need to completely change your life. Now let's put it back into context. You are following the way of this world, indulging yourself, whatever. You need to be following the one rabbi who can rescue you, and his name is Jesus. Repent means you need to change. New Testament talks about sin two ways. The one way that most of us think about sin, and it's true, is a transactional view of sin. Sin is, I did something wrong, I told a lie, I stole some money, or I didn't do something that was right. I let somebody you know, have trouble when I could have saved them. I, I hold a grudge forever and treat somebody mean and I shouldn't have done that. Whatever, we tend to think of sin as a transaction, something you do or something you don't do. That's true, it's just not entirely true. The scripture does talk about sinful acts. But beyond that, you won't understand the New Testament very well unless you also understand that the scripture thinks of sin as a terminal disease that you and I have. 
Sin is something that we have and it left untreated will kill us. And I mean kill us in an eternal sense. So the Bible talks about sin in both of those ways. What Romans is gonna say and the way Paul's gonna say it that we've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. We've all rebelled against God. It says no one is righteous, not even one. What's this saying? It said we had the same choice Adam and Eve had. We can follow God and do what he wants or we can do what we want and we all chose to do what we want and we began to walk that path. And if you remember the, the preaching is that that path leads to one place and it's death. Now how am I going to live? Well, I need to repent, I need to walk on a different path and I need to quit following Satan or me or lust or fame or power or pride or whatever I've been following and I need to follow the rabbi Jesus. I need to deny myself and say, put that stuff away, that leads to death and I need to follow the rabbi Jesus. So the scripture, what does this mean? Why is the gospel good news? Why is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ good news? First of all, because God has a justifiable wrath against sin and evil and rebellion. And you and I are rebels against God, or were. We have a sin problem that we cannot cure. Third part, justice or judgment. This is Jesus again. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the people of all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is a judgment parallel passage. This says, not only is God wrathful towards sin and evil and rebellion, and not only are you and I on the wrong side of that, we are the rebels, we are the ones who are caught in sin. The Bible would say we're slaves to sin. In other words, we're not able to change paths by ourselves. What am I going to say to God? I was a bad guy, but I promise I'll act real good now. That, that's not how that works, right? So there's a judgment, there's an accounting coming. Well, that makes sense to all of us, whether we believe the scripture or not. Who would want to believe in a God that wouldn't do justice? Who would want to look at the events of October 7th? Who would want to look at what Hitler did? Who would want to look at the millions, tens of millions of people that Stalin killed? That I'm just talking about the 20th century, for heaven's sake. There were more people killed in the 20th century probably than ever in all of history. Who could believe in a God that wouldn't do justice? Like, somebody's got to make this right. And God said, I will make it right. I have wrath against evil and sin. And you and I are like, wow, I'm on the wrong side of that. And so the judgment is coming. Now, you're starting to think to yourself, Terry, this all sounds like very bad, bad news. Yes. And if you don't believe that, then the gospel is not good news. Doesn't make any difference if you believe Jesus died on a cross. And there are people that don't believe what I just said and do believe Jesus died on the cross as an example of unbelievable compassion for your fellow man. 
that means nothing to me. It's like, well, great, he was a good guy. So what? I mean, that means nothing. That's not Christianity. That's not the essence of the Christian faith. That could be a great little philosophy if you want to. Kind of incoherent. Like, just because Jesus was good, that doesn't mean I need to be good. But if you don't believe that part that the Scripture's teaching, you don't actually think the gospel is good news. So what's good news about the gospel? Well, if you understand that God is wrathful at sin, that I am caught in sin, and that judgment is coming, a just judgment, even you and I, when God pronounces judgment, won't be able to say, hey, that's not fair. Oh, no. Won't even be close. Once we understand that, now all of a sudden we start to realize why this event is good news. So let's get to reconciliation. I like this word because I think salvation is a little overused. I mean, it's true, I'm not knocking the idea of salvation, but man, we have stretched that word to mean so many things. I wanna pick another biblical word, and that is, I was an enemy of God, under his wrath, judgment was coming. That's the first three parts of, that the scripture tells us. This is why the gospel is good news, because we were caught in sin, God's wrath was on us, and judgment was coming. And the scripture then talks about it in this way. He says in Ephesians, to, Ephesians is a great way to articulate this. For by grace, you have been rescued. And I like rescued a little better than saved. That word's translated in various documents. I mean, to be saved means to be rescued. That word's used for being plucked out of the ocean after a shipwreck. I mean, they mean the same thing, but I wanna jar our thinking a little bit and get out of some of the ruts we're in. For by grace you have been rescued through your trust in Jesus Christ. What trust? That he actually died on the cross to bear my sins, was buried, was raised, overcame sin, and now made a way for me to be reconciled to God something you and I couldn't do on our own. That's the gospel event, and this is the Bible telling you, let me tell you what this means. You have no idea what good news this is until you know what this means. And so he says, you've been saved by grace through faith. This isn't something you could do, it's a gift, not a result of any good deeds you've done, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You notice in this passage, the good works come after the reconciliation, not before the reconciliation. We can't be rescued. We can't repent and walk another path on our own. Romans 5.1, beautiful passage. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, justified is a forensic term. It's a legal term. And what it says is, the judgment was coming, the judge has wrath against sin, and you and I had sin all over us. And somehow, we got declared not guilty. That act of being justified, being righteous, these are all the same Greek word. You're now righteous, you're now not guilty, you have been justified, you're like, what? How could that possibly happen? I was guilty as I could possibly be. We have been justified by faith. What? By placing our trust in Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
uh, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In other words, we have somehow averted the wrath of God and the judgment. How did that happen? Well, you remember that event I was telling you about? That historical event of the death, burial, and bodily resurrection of Christ? Let me tell you what actually happened. It's more than just a guy dying and then unbelievably comes back to life. There's an entire spiritual dimension here. And Ephesians 2.11 says it this way, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, far away from God, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Listen to this description of me uh, before Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, meaning not part of God's uh, kingdom, part of God's people, and strangers to the covenants of promise, meaning I had no relationship with God, I was a rebel, having no hope and without God in the world. That is where we were. But now in Christ Jesus, what does that mean? Is I belong to Christ Jesus, he's my rabbi, I'm gonna follow him, I'm gonna be exactly like him, my trust is completely in him. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ's death did something. For he himself is our peace. He has made us both uh, one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments that he might create in himself one new man. That's an idea that's all over the New Testament, is your old self died. Your sin went on Christ. When we're buried in bapt, when we're, we're baptized, we are enacting dying and being buried with Christ, although he did the heavy lifting and bore our sins and being raised to walk in newness of life. You're a new creation. I'm just throwing out these phrases from the New Testament. What are they trying to tell you? They're trying to explain to you why that event was such good news because something big happened for all who will place their trust in what Jesus did. So making peace so he might reconcile us to God, therefore killing the hostility. What did Jesus do? He, that event reconciled us to God. It put aside the judgment the right judgment, the just judgment of us as rebels who deserved the wrath of God. We were rescued from our faith because of what Jesus did in being incarnated, dying with our sins, and not just dying with our sins, that would have been a noble gesture, but it would have done you no good whatsoever. And being raised to life, he overcame death, he overcame sin, because he himself knew no sin. Uh, when the scriptures talk about Jesus being the perfect sacrifice, I want you when you read the New Testament, it's a good way to read it as explaining to you why that event is good news for you. The bad parts that talk about your sin, the bad parts that talk about the wrath of God, the scary parts that talk about judgment, ah, but the beautiful parts that talk about for God so loved the world that he made a way for us to be reconciled. Well, what do I need to do? You can't do anything. 
God is going to do it for you. You know what that's called? Grace, a gift. The word grace means gift. It's a gift to you and me. That is like the best news you could ever hear. But if you don't accept the premises, then it's not good news. And so in the context of what we're talking about, one of the essentials is that we believe the historical event, I mean, quote, Christians who say, I don't believe in the resurrection, that's not in any meaningful sense Christian. I mean, I guess you could put that label on anything you want, but that's not the way of Christ. That's not what the scriptures teach. Without the resurrection, this whole thing falls apart. That's why the Christian faith is not based on the teachings of Jesus, as wonderful as they are. It's not based on the good deeds of Jesus, as wonderful as they are, and both of those are examples. Why? Because we want to be exactly like our rabbi. But none of those things are what our faith is based on. Our faith is based on the belief that he solved my terminal sin problem by dying and being resurrected for me, an atoning sacrifice, as the scripture says, so that now I'm free of the burden of sin. When Jesus said, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. He meant that in several ways, but the biggest way he meant that was, you can't carry this load of sin and it will kill you. But if you come to me, I can carry this and you follow me. And that's the essence of the Christian life. I love this passage in Ephesians. Think about how this captures what does the, the gospel event mean. You used to be dead, you just didn't know it yet, you used to be dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, not the deeds you committed. I mean, that's bad, but listen to how this thing. You lived a life of rebellion against God. Sin is a condition in addition to it being a deed. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you used to live. When you were following the course of this world, you didn't realize it, but you were following the prince of the power of the air, the ultimate rebel, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our self, our flesh, our desires, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, deservedly so, like the rest of mankind. But God, because he liked us, nope. Because we were so good, nope. Because he was rich in mercy and because of the great inexplicable love which with he loved us. Remember the word amazing grace? This is why grace is amazing. Why do you love us? We are not lovable. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, when we were still rebels, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. You've been rescued and raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus.
That's what the gospel is, an event, and this is what it means. That's an essential part of Christianity. Question. Yes, there are some creeds and um, Christians who consider Jesus' descent into hell to be an integral part of the gospel. Is that an important part of the gospel? Good questions. Question was, there's some creeds that talk about uh, Jesus, uh, they add in there, because I just said Jesus' incarnation, death on the cross, what's significant about it? He took our sins to the cross. They will add, descended into hell, was raised on the third day, so resurrection. Yes, there are creeds that say that. Is that essential? I think that's a little more nuanced than the essence of the gospel. I accept that. Uh, there's a lot of conjecture about what was Christ doing when he went into hell. I mean, one thought, obvious thought would be that Jesus bore your and my sins on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God turned his face away because he looked so ugly. He had all our sins. And Satan says, you are mine. And then he realizes Jesus isn't his because Jesus himself is sinless. He's the perfect sacrifice. Jesus suffered greatly, but death could not hold him. Now I'm quoting hymns, and it's true. Death could not hold him, and he is raised from the dead. So yes, I don't add that in here because I, I don't think that's necessarily part of the main flow. That's not really talked about as much. So it's not that I doubt the truth of that or that creed, just not part of this. Okay? So think about that. And I want you to, I want to jar us out of our ruts. Not that our ruts are wrong. Not that the word salvation and some other things are, are bad or wrong. I think every now and then we just need to be kind of shaken up a little and go, wow, wait a minute. I want to look at this from a very, very biblical point of view and just the way the scriptures do. That the Christian faith is a way of life. It, we believe certain things are true. In fact, we rely on Jesus, that he is who he says he is, and he did what he said he did. We believe it. We more than believe it. We're counting on it to be true. He obviously demonstrated that to us, that he is the son of God. He is the perfect sacrifice. We also follow him and the Holy Spirit of God inside us. Remember Ephesians 1.13, when you believed, you were sealed with God's very spirit. What's that spirit doing in you? Hanging around? Oh no, that spirit is doing a complete new build on you and me. When that passage said you were destined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, you are going to think and act and be just like your rabbi. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You go, I don't know if I can do it. Let me just reassure you, you can't. You just can't act that good. But guess what? You have help. You have supernatural help. It's the spirit of God within us. We cooperate with the spirit. We don't just get on an improvement plan and say, I'm going to start acting like Jesus. Of course we cooperate with the spirit, but that's what God put his spirit in us to do is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the essence in the story of the gospel. Think about that. Let that sink in. It starts badly. I was in a very bad place. That's true, and you just can't deny it. That's part of the essence of Christian teaching. And 
Christ died for me that I could be reconciled to God. And that's the best news you will ever hear. So what's next? The authority of scripture. And when I say the good news of Jesus Christ or the gospel, this is what I mean. What we just talked about, that is the gospel. What happened and what the scripture says it means. What else is essential to it? Different people have very different ideas about who God is. So I wanna start with the scripture, which is the source of our knowledge and authority and the revelation of God. We would not know about God. We would not know what the gospel means unless God had revealed it to us in the scriptures. This would be a pointless philosophical exercise that we're dead in our sins and this is a nice book, but what, what's the point? And God said, I solved your problem. We say he redeemed us, he made a way for us. Who is this God who has done this? Jesus said, uh, summarizing the law of Moses, the most important command is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the Shema, fundamental confession of the Jewish faith, not the fundamental confession of the Christian faith. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And here's the interesting question. Who am I loving? with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Who is this God that I am gonna commit my whole life to? And here's where the confusion comes in. A lot of religions would say, you know what? We all actually worship the same God. Is that true? Do we all worship the same God? Who is this God that we worship? I'll tell you that next week. See you guys then. <laughs>